0: Hello, everyone, and uh, I hope you are having a great holiday season if you're listening to this when this is released. Uh, If not, hello, future people, and uh, I hope you are having a good year yourselves. So, this will be the last episode of 2021, and uh, I wanted to thank everybody for listening this year. I really appreciate it. Your comments, your questions, your contributions to the podcast have been delightful and wonderful. And I really appreciate them. I especially am grateful to my Patreons who have continued to help fund this podcast, helping me to buy the books I need to get during the year and to help with my research. And uh, I look forward to hopefully doing a bit more for you guys in the new year. Um, But thank you nonetheless for your contributions. And uh, we certainly want to continue to build on this, and work together to create an even better podcast come 2022. And with that, let's uh, begin the episode proper, shall we? Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 158, the march to Bosworth. As the winter of 1483-84 began, Richard III was burning figurative bridges. He had commanded his fleet to attack the Breton ships in the Channel, to seize them, and generally to create chaos on the seas, in punishment for France's support of Henry during the Buckingham Rebellion. The move was one made by a man of a hot temper, and one who did not seem to understand the way medieval politics had worked for the past few hundred years. The reality was that for the Bretons, this now gave them the ability to outwardly support Henry Tudor and stop the continued negotiations with England. Richard may have tired of the blackmail, but he would pay for his decisions with his life. Because without the Bretons' support, we would likely not get to Bosworth. The irony for those Britons who had fled to Gaul or Francia, now supporting another British descendant, To attain the Kingdom of England is not one that is lost on me. Certainly, it wasn't lost on the people in Breton, nor in Wales, where this loyalty and continued alliance had been possible in the past. The fact that things have changed over the last nearly a thousand years since this happened doesn't change the fact that there were still connections and still a common language and a common sense of purpose. And uh, combined with that, Francis's loyalty to Henry was remarkable even through all this. Henry, on the other hand, had slowly been changing tactics. Gone was the man looking to get back in the good graces of the Yorkist king. Gone as well was the political players who were looking to oppose him. As Edward IV was now dead and his heir likely as well, Louis XI, who had played such a critical role in keeping the Tudors in Brittany, had passed away recently as well. As Christmas arrived, Henry had finally received the only gift he really needed, allies. Many in the positions of authority around England and Wales had actually supported Buckingham's failed rebellion, showing that support for Richard might have been strong for him as Lord Protector had now vanished when the boys did. He might have gained the throne, but he also gained a great deal of hostility, in part because he supported northern lords and northern nobles, to some degree, over the southern ones, which also presented a problem for him. While many will point to Tudor propaganda as being something that created a strong impression of what Richard was like, and that A lot of this was, if not incorrect, certainly skewed. The one thing that it did not erase was that generally it was pretty obvious he wasn't well-liked. He was not even tolerated by people who had supported his brother. His kingdom hung on a knife's edge within months of his accession because he was so unloved. Or even respected. That doesn't mean that he could not have been a good king or that he could not have gained their trust and respect in time. There are a lot of historians who view Edward I as a good king if you avoid the Welsh and Scottish parts. So, realistically, you can have a good king eventually given time and ability. But what is pretty clear is Richard III was not an effective king. And his downfall was that he could not build alliances with people who did not trust him. Richard, after the rebellion, had taken out his revenge, having his former friend Buckingham executed, calling him the most untrue creature living. He also executed his brother in law, Sir Thomas St. Leger, and a number of other nobles fled from Richard's version of justice. Most fled to France or Brittany and in so doing, looked to the final obvious choice to combat the king and his allies. Henry Tudor was no longer a political prisoner being hauled around western France. He was now the only remaining heir apparent to challenge Richard for the throne. Richard rewarded his northern nobles with lands in the south, from the lands he confiscated amongst the nobility who had rebelled against him, and some of whom obviously had been killed, something that once again created enemies amongst those who saw him as rewarding his northern adherents, as they would call it. The call was growing for the return of a different, in quotes, ancient rulers, rather than the tyranny of Richard and his allies. Richard had come to understand about the collusion between Elizabeth Woodville, Margaret Beaufort, and Buckingham. And it meant that the king needed to act with care while dealing with these troublemakers. He decided, probably because of how powerful Margaret's husband, Thomas Stanley, was, that he could not execute Margaret or even imprison her. Of course, part of this was down to the fact that she was a woman. But it was also likely due to that Stanley, having shown a neutral role in all of the things that he'd been doing publicly, made it difficult to execute his wife. Some historians feel he was well aware of his wife's ideals and supported them in secret. Instead, Margaret was to be on house arrest under the watchful eye of her husband. Richard decreed that as her punishment for her part of the conspiracy. He also seized her lands, but once again, instead of taking them for himself and doling them out to his friends and associates, he instead put all of them in the hands of her husband, including... Henry's possessions, which means that for a man that was already very powerful and already had a number of lands, he grew in greater strength from this. According to Henry the Seventh's biographer, Polidore Virgil, Stanley was to in quotes, remove from his wife all her servants and keep her so straight with himself that she should not be able to thenceforth send any message neither to her son nor friends nor practice anything at all against the king. Unquote. As Margaret dealt with house arrest, soft or not, her son set in motion the next year of his life. As Richard carried out lavish feasts to mark the season in great splendor, In Brittany, at Raine's Cathedral, Henry Tudor made his first public declaration that he would marry Princess Elizabeth, daughter of Edward IV. This, what he obviously hoped, would bridge the gap with the Yorkists as a sign of unity both for the Lancastrians and Yorkists under one banner. Those in attendance declared their fealty to Henry as if he was the king and marked his first real public claim for the throne. This was no longer the Earl of Richmond, but the contender to the throne of England. The fact that at almost 18 years old, Elizabeth was not in Brittany, but still trapped with her mother and the other Woodfill women in sanctuary likely meant she had very little reason to care about this particular situation at this point. But as 1483 ended, the die was now cast. Richard had been planning to announce something of his own, one that would have significant reverberations on the eventual war for the crown that was now obviously coming. Henry and Richard were now the last two combatants standing in the War of the Roses, and they both knew what was at stake. As January dawned, Richard and his court prepared for the return of Parliament. This would be a momentous one for him and the final straw. Richard's favorite, William Catsby, was chosen as Speaker, a man who was a Richard Loyalist and Counselor to the King, and someone we'll talk about a little bit later. The Parliament met on January 23, 1484, and Richard's supporters began to raise the gambit by introducing the Titillus Regius as an act of Parliament that would both ratify Richard as King of England and remove the legitimacy of Edward IV's marriage, something that he, Richard, had been contending since he ascended to King last summer. Enshrining this into law would give him what he needed to set himself up as the legitimate heir while knocking the Woodvilles out of the picture once and for all. He went so far as to rename them Grays, which is an interesting choice, so that their surname would now be Gray instead of Woodville. If he hoped that he would achieve this certainty via legal documents, that at least he did do. However, it feels like... It was made to try and convince the nobility of England and foreign leaders across Europe that he was somehow more kingly because of this. Again, going against, in some respects, the norm when it comes to kingship in the medieval era, which is if you have the power, you take it. And if anybody can stop you, they will. If they can't, then you're the king. On this occasion, this is one of those rare times where you see a leader who's very strong or at least perceived strong, but is unable to carry out the throne because the population is not with him normally in especially in england it's basically been the strong survive the weak die off or or don't last very long or end up being ruled by others this is one of those rare times for richard the Third is in a position where there is a strong contender and he has to fight this contender off and this is what's leading to all the problems combine that with nearly 30 years of fighting over this crown, and it makes it even more obvious what the problems are. The public opinion itself was very mixed. This was the man who had claimed killed two children, or at least it was speculated and rumored, Edward's heirs, while also claiming their title. Now he was trying to say that they were not even rightful heirs to the title in the first place. I'm not sure that the Harts of London or the Farms of Gloucester thought very highly of this. While the courts of public opinion was not something necessarily strong in the medieval period, like in current times, there must have been some talk beyond the churches and noble halls about what was going on. If there was, I'm sure it was likely mixed." In Wales, you get the sense that they were not very pleased with Richard, and certainly not wanting him in charge. Keep in mind that they were strong supporters of the Lancastrians, who had held Wales for a long time, even while Edward ruled. Many of the bards had celebrated Henry, and even the connection that Edward had to Wales, but did not return that honour to Richard. The support of Buckingham, after all, had come from Wales and West England. The marcher lords and the Welsh nobles were obviously not tremendously fond of Richard. Likely, it was this animosity which continued the pot-boiling while Henry continued to lay the groundwork for his return to Britain. Richard tried to make people happy by changing some of the laws which made Edward unpopular, including the right to have and be offered bail, reforms to land tenure system, and importantly, the removal of the forced loan or tax called a benevolence that Edward had put in place and had made a lot of people very angry. The hope being that by doing these things, it would make the people look at Richard more positively. If so, I would argue it probably failed. The king also tried to build a bridge with the remaining Lancastrians by reburying Henry VI in Windsor. at factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? this may have been more about the rumors that were now floating around that Richard had been the one to kill Henry. Because, of course, we don't know how Henry died. He just dies shortly thereafter of the, the final defeat of the Lancastrians. So, realistically, rumors have been flying probably about this through the last 10 years. Combined with that, the fact that, of course, they are already been naming him as a Kingslayer it kind of starts to follow him around, and so everything starts to follow him. Also, with this particular situation, you have this rumor that Henry the Sixth has had in his burial area miracles happen. Of course, Henry was considered very devoted to the church, very religious and very worshipful of the church. That was one of his big things about him that carried forward. So there was a lot of speculation that he was basically a saint, And in this process, this created a lot of hostility, and Richard, knowing all of this, probably tried to rebury him to avoid any more of this kind of thing going on. Richard also offered Elizabeth Woodville her freedom from her sanctuary, claiming that he would not punish her or her remaining children. Of course, all of these children were girls and couldn't inherit the throne at this point, seen as something of a public relations move, considering the Woodvilles were still increasingly dangerous some historians have given forward the idea that part of the issue is, is that in a patriarchal society like medieval England, there was general dismissal about the power that women might have held. If that is true, then it was about to be tested under the Tudors in a few years. It was also a terribly stupid thing to think. Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort were women who had obviously been very politically astute and very clever in creating their power bases, and far from ones to sit quietly by as the men did all the work, they were the ones conniving and maneuvering. And they had proven that time after time in the last 20 years. The reason for his clemency may have stemmed from finding out that Henry was intent on marrying Princess Elizabeth as part of the agreement with the Woodvilles, something Richard would have fought tooth and nail to avoid. This accompanying an attempt by Richard to deal with a growing hostility by pardoning some of the culprits within Margaret's family and friends, he likely hoped that this would build some sense of obligation or at least some loyalty. Something that likely meant little, as many had already started to make their way to Brittany, and it seems obvious that many were already following into line with this Lancastrian contender. On March 1st, the king swore on a Bible that Elizabeth and her children would be under his protection, held in respect by him and his court. He also offered that each of the girls would be married off to nobles with a dowry from the crown of 200 pounds, and the former queen would receive a pension of 700 pounds a year to retire in peace. Bluntly, you can see why Elizabeth would have taken this offer. At the same time, you cannot shake but shake your head at the foolishness of freeing her to do as she pleases. She was already very dangerous while being held in her effective prison. Now you've allowed her to have even more ability to contact allies. One man in particular benefited from this round of clemency, though. Lord Thomas Stanley, after the death of Buckingham, had received lands across England as well as titles including the Constable of England. His loyalty unquestioned, he now gained lands in the Welsh Marches. His brother, William Stanley, would be named as Chief Justice in North Wales and given command of Carnarvon Castle, a shocking achievement so soon after Margaret's betrayal. That did not mean, among the Richard Loyalists, there were no doubts raised by this idea. Some outright opposed making peace with Stanley, no matter where he claimed he stood. Nonetheless, it seemed Richard did not want to have this rich noble with so much power on the wrong side at this moment in time. Likely, he hoped by creating all this clemency, it would serve to ease his enemies and bring more on his side. Richard, unfortunately for him, was struck at the loss of his heir as his son died on April ninth, 1484, leaving him without a natural heir as his wife, Anne would not have any more children and would die herself only a few months later after a long illness, which was suspected to be tuberculosis. Although, of course, as happened so often during this era, there was all sorts of accusations about poisoning and crazy rumors that you can understand would have flown around about Richard in a time when every conspiracy kind of ended with him. On July 18th, a parchment was pinned on the door of St. Paul's Cathedral. On it was a short couplet, and it read, The cat, the rat, and Lovell our dog ruleth all England under a hog. This resentful and bitter comment on the court of Richard, who was the hog, and his advisers William Catsby, Sir Richard Ratcliffe, obviously the rat, and Viscount Lovell, who was the dog, it made it clear that effectively Richard was ruling with a bunch of barely craven people, in effect. It, it was obviously meant to be insulting. But of course, in an era where we have the ability to call out our politicians, make fun of them, call them rude names, be very vid- brutal to them if we so desire on social media— it would be a bit of a surprise if you didn't understand how things worked in a one-man government, but this was seen as incredibly traitorous, and a manhunt was called to find the culprit, eventually honing in on William Collingbourne, a servant of Edward, and a formerly to the mother-in-law of the king, Cecily Neville. He was tried for sedition and convicted as more Evidence of his treason had reached Richard, including letters that were sent to Henry, reaching out to him and his court, in quotes, in Brittany. Collingbourne was executed in a horror show of torture, followed by near death, followed by more torture, generally too gruesome to describe. It shows just how paranoid Richard and his loyalists were becoming against Henry. The fact that this person who'd written a little poem was effectively destroyed and tortured to death shows that the Tudors were becoming a problem and that likely they were also stoking some of the fires themselves. Rumors had flown through the spring and summer that Henry was on the brink of invasion, none of which was true, of course, but served to set Richard on edge and created a sense of alarm and a general sense of panic. There was... Various things done to make ready the nation in fear of this invasion, which of course would never come in 1484 because Henry by this point is not ready to do anything. He's got supporters, but he's certainly not in a position to launch some sort of invasion. But nonetheless, everyone in England thought things were on the brink. To try and finally deal with this issue, Richard increased his pressure on Brittany to capture the last likely royal challenger. Unfortunately for the tutors, Duke Francis was elderly at this point, and his health was in difficulty. He had problems with uh, keeping his mental state active, and much like Henry VI, went through moments of inability. And in that process, others took over, including his head minister at the time, Pierre Landris, who had been in charge and had very different ideas about how to deal with Henry and Jasper and was much more willing to listen to Richard as he was pushing. It was obvious that the king needed to deal with Tudor quickly before anything else happened to build his growing competition. Pressure was now on Richard and Landis to get the deal resolved, as internal dissent had been causing them both problems. Landis was dealing with nobles who opposed his tentative rule in the name of the duke, and... While this negotiation was going on, he was dealing with people trying to get to the Duke to free him from what they perceived as Landis's oversight. Negotiations were then put in place, among other things, to exchange Tudor to the King in exchange for the title of Earl of Richmond, of course, currently claimed by Henry Tudor, but had been a historical claim that was given to the Dukes of Brittany by the kings of England going as far back as the kingship of Stephen in the early 12th century. Henry's court was informed of this negotiation in September by way of John Morton, who was now in France, also in exile. Some historians believe that he was informed either by Margaret Beaufort or her husband Thomas Stanley. Obviously, Stanley would likely know of the negotiations due to his position in the court, and either he had told his wife, who then took her own actions, or likely he helped to get the news out, as Morton was a firm ally of the Beaufort and uh, Stanley's Jasper and Henry, and the court in exile fled Brittany in a desperate attempt to escape to France and to the border town of Rennes shortly after this arrival in France. King Charles the Eighth called him to his court, where they were to hold a meeting with Henry and he would treat him as an equal, as a fellow monarch. This, of course, was likely more about tweaking the nose of the King of England than it was about actually respecting Henry. But nonetheless, in honoring Henry, it gave even more legitimacy to him and allowed him to present himself as the king in exile. In October, the remaining English lords and retinues who were trapped in Brittany joined Henry after Duke Francis regained his health enough to punish Landis for his part in his conspiracy with England and swelling the forces of Henry, which, of course, was hard to ignore. At this point, Henry had gained about 500 nobles who he had around him from both the Lancastrian and Yorkist sides, something of a coup already, if we're honest. Of course, France being France, immediately committed to help Henry take England as the, in quotes, rightful king. By November, Henry received another boon as the Earl of Oxford, who'd been held in Calais since he had lost control of the city to Edward, was able to escape with the help of a few key nobles who also defected to Tudor. Oxford was a firm Lancastrian, which had put him in a position of power within that group. He had also been a very clever and able military tactician, something that also was frightening if you were on Richard's side, and one thing that Richard had tried to avoid. In fact, Richard had tried to, once he realized what Henry had done in fleeing to France, tried to have Oxford moved to England to avoid this particular turn of events, but in reality, it alerted Oxford and those loyal to him, and thus he was able to escape. Oxford, of course, had more usefulness, as he wasn't just a good military man, but also very much his courtly ability was respected as well. Thus, his abilities to create relationships with France and with other kingdoms made him also a formidable ally. So having him alone was a masterstroke for Henry. Largely, the other side effect to having Oxford is that he brought with him troops, something that now gave Henry a legitimate ability to take out and attack Richard, something that now brings the French on board even more, because, of course, now there is an actual active group that can oppose him and the French and the Bretons will both support that. Now both the Yorkists and Lancastrians, at least the ones that were not loyal to Richard, were united about something, and that was their hatred of Richard III, and had begun preparations to defeat him. As the decisive new year of 1485 dawned and the march to Bosworth would begin in earnest, all of Richard's fears were about to come true, Henry was the true opponent, and a formidable one, with former leaders from both Henry VI and Edward IV supporting him, and with powerful families across England, Wales, and in France and Brittany, nobles and monarchs supported him. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you have a great end of your December, and I wish you nothing but the best for 2022. Thank you all so very much. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook, you can join our little community at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And as always, if you'd like to help out financially, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis, introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in depth look at the seemingly unconnected events